Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 333, Choosing Sides. Last time we heard about the War of Words, how Charles managed to present himself as the defender of order, social hierarchy, permanence of tradition, defender of the Church of England. It was a powerful and simple call to arms, because he had a point. Parliament did appear to be innovators, taking over royal prerogatives in the name of Parliament and the people, accompanied by dangerous and radical ideas of liberty and individualism in politics and religion. We heard about Henry Parker, his belief that authority proceeded from the people, that the welfare of the people was the supreme law, and that while a king could be a tyrant, representatives of the people, their Parliament, never could. I think I promised you physical violence in this episode, and if so, I am afraid I lied. So sorry about that. I can be unreliable. It won't be until next week that we actually get to the violence and the shooting. This week, in fact, what we're going to do is to discuss how people made the agonising decisions they had to make about which side to back, a choice that became increasingly urgent. But at the same time, was all this up people really necessary, many people have begun to ask. Had the king's tyranny not been pinned back enough? After all, he says he promises to be good. Maybe this time he means it. Why can't the pair of them just sort it out? A peace party was appearing on both sides of the divide. Nonetheless, it was coming to the crunch. Parliament and king were now demanding of people that they make a choice. Many simply could not believe that it had come to this. It is strange to note 
how we have insensibly slid into this beginning of a civil war by one unexpected accident after another as waves of the sea which hath brought us thus far when we scarce know how but from paper combats we are now come to the question of raising forces and naming a general of officers of the army these are the words of Bulstrode Whitelock, a solid and reasonably well-off member of the gentry, with houses by the Thames and up the hills near Henley. We have met Bulstrode already at the trial of Strafford, when Bulstrode, the southern softy, was outwitted by the bluff Yorkshireman Strafford. Bulstrode left a long and detailed diary which the great Victorian historian Samuel Gardiner found thoroughly dull. Bulstrode, dry as dust, he called him. But dry as dust or not, I swear you will find this quote above in pretty much every book on the Civil War because it shows the bewilderment that was shared by the large number of the English and Welsh as they slid into the blood-red moor of Civil War in a country which hadn't seen a big civil conflict on any scale since when, what, the Northern Rising of 1569 was a damp squib? The commotion's time of 1549, I suppose, but for an army on the march on a significant national scary scale. Don't we have to go back to, I don't know, the Cornish Rebellion of 1497 or the Battle of Stoke, 1487, I suppose there was the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536. I mean, we could debate all that, but whatever the tides and tensions in English society, it is cohesion, coherence, accommodation that is far and away the chief characteristic. Almost no one wanted to fight, and yet hundreds of thousands of English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish were about to nonetheless step into one of the greatest tragedies of our history. How people made the choice that they didn't want to make is the subject of this episode. There are a couple of fundamental questions concerning civil war allegiances about which folk have argued back and forth, waving their papers in fury at conferences, rattling teacup aggressively against saucer in chin-wobbling frustration about the false steps and faux pas of their professional colleagues. One of these is why people made the choices they did, and whether ordinary folk like you and me though of course I accept we are all of us extraordinary and there is no such thing as normal, whether ordinary folks such as us really had any choice or got involved in any way, or were simply, as David Underdown asks, cannon fodder in the war of the powerful and the extremist, targets for plunder, prawns cocktailed according to the wishes of their social superiors. We had a famous philosopher at the time, Hobbesy by name, and he not only feared that life could be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, but was frankly very cynical about the motivations of the woman on the Clapham omnibus. There are very few of the common people that cared much for either of the causes, but would have taken any side for pay or plunder. For shame, Hobbesy. But for Kidderminster Minister Richard Baxter, Hobbes was no kidder. The poor ploughman understood but little of these matters, but a little would stir up their discontent when money was demanded. Talking of ploughmen, Nick of this parish some time ago sent me a note about a story a historian tells, one of those great stories of the revolution. There we are then at one of the biggest battles of the Civil War. It's Marston Moor in 1644. Rival armies are all drawn up, hearts 
are in mouths. Cannons are primed, ready for blood and glory. But unable to have at it because some sturdy yokel was ploughing his fields between the armies. Well, he was rapidly brought up to speed about the war between King and Parliament, at which he leant on his plough, rolled his eyes and asked, What has they two fallen out again? But probably in a Yorkshire accent. Anyway, nice story. Thank you, Nick. We've gone through various fashions of explaining how and why people got involved in the historiography of it all. There's the deference theory, which says this was a quarrel of the elite, a bit like the Wars of the Roses, maybe, with ordinary folk just there to shoot and get shot, cannon fodder sent to their deaths by their social superiors and landlords. Then we had a period where the idea of class struggle was popular, a politicised, middling sort of merchants and lesser gentry seizing political control from the old guard, Christopher Hill and his like. And while the out-and-out -out Marxism thing might have departed stage left, pursued by lack of evidence, a sort of class explanation does still remain, which was around at the time and of which people were very conscious at the time. So, Edward Hyde, who became Earl of Clarendon and increasingly posh by the time he wrote his History of the Rebellion, angrily accused the people of supporting Parliament, not, of course, to any lofty belief in liberty and the rule of law. Oh, dearie me, no. Their support was born of natural malignity, the fury and licence of the common people. Acting directions note here, by the way, take enormous swig of port, let some dribble down your lips onto your chin as you spit bile on the common people. Barbarity and rage against the nobility and gentry. No one accused Clarendon of being woke. But he was not alone. As the shooting started, the Earl of Danby confidently predicted to his steward, the king would have the better, for the gentry would stick by him. Parliament had only the common people. Poor old Parliament, eh? In fact, of course, he was quite wrong in that many gentry did support Parliament, although he was partly right in that in almost all of the counties except two, I think, the royalist gentry outnumbered those supporting Parliament, often by a significant margin, two to one. But after the counting is all done, there is no hard and fast rule in any particular place. All you can really conclude is that the higher up the social scale you go, the higher the proportion of royalists. Then there is religion, of course. Remember the quiz, if you took part? Many observers were convinced that this is the British religious wars. A bit delayed, maybe, from the continental toing and froing, but had to happen sometime, and here it is. Lawyers versus clerics. Royalist, Catholic and Anglican fun-lovers stick Puritans and lemon-suckers. Once again, it is impossible to create a hard and fast rule, but like social class, you can identify tendencies. For contemporaries, politics and religion were almost inextricably intertwined. Arminianism was closely associated with papism and with tyranny. Richard Baxter looked around at his community and thought that those who were then called Puritans that used to talk of God and heaven, about scripture and holiness... I say the main body of this sort of men adhered to Parliament. OK. And then on the other royalist side were the gentry. 
that were not so precise against an oath or gaming or drinking, nor troubled themselves so much about matters of God and the world to come, but went to church and heard common prayer, Pender would be horrified. But I think I might have been with that lucky parson. But of course, as time went by, continuing to duck became increasingly difficult. The demands for money, horses, provisions by king or parliament, and frequently both, made it harder and harder to stand to one side. Neutralism might result then in trying to duck, but one of the most utterly heartrending aspects of this period is the attempt of local communities to just refuse to fight for anyone. Right until bullet or pike met flesh, horses screamed, men, women and children died, many people did not believe war was coming and begged the king and parliament to get their heads together, sort this thing out. Communities tried to hold back the tide and simply refused to take part. Loyalty to the local community was everything. So, gentries got together and they made an agreement not to fight. Fully 22 of the 38 historic counties negotiated such an agreement. And sometimes they were pretty aggressive about it. In Staffordshire, they agreed to put a local army of a thousand men together and chase away anyone who came to destroy their peace on their patch. They would just put their arms around each other, turn their backs on the world outside. After all, if you live in Stoke, you have already won first prize in the lottery of life. Attempts to keep the world at bay went on well into 1643. In Dorset, for example, in 1643, the leading gentry agreed to bury the hatchet in the heads of any roundheads or cavaliers that came to call, or all forces whatsoever that shall enter our territory. Devon, Cornwall and Dorset tried to set up a south-west peace zone. But guess who didn't turn up? Somerset. That's who. Tisk. Typical. Maybe the polar opposite of the not-in-my-backyard approach was the just-do-what-you're-told approach. Many tried to just do what they were told when their county was taken over, whichever side was in control at any given time. South Wales was a good example of this, where they tried to please both sides and indeed acquired the name of ambidexters. Which incidentally raises the question of how Catholics reacted, and it might seem that the rule of Thomas Hobson would apply here. Thomas Hobson, it was said, was a livery owner in Cambridgeshire in the 16th century who would give the buyer the choice only of the horse closest to the door of the stable. So, effectively, no choice at all. I mean, if you were a Catholic... Given the invective against papism of the likes of Pym, Warwick and the Covenanters, you'd surely just find your nearest royal recruiter and ask where to sign. A Hobson's choice, as clear as day, you'd have thought. And it is true to say that Catholics would form a disproportionately high percentage of officers in some of the royal armies, particularly in the north. But Hobson could not, after all, really remove any choice because you could always walk away and just not buy any jolly old horse at all and two-thirds of Catholics did just that. They tried not to fight for anyone and concentrate on not dying. All the attempts at neutralism failed, by the way, but localism remained very powerful even in 1645 after three years of war there will appear movements of the clubmen large numbers of people arming themselves to keep royalist or parliamentary armies off their patch. All of this, just as a plot spoiler, will fail. There have been other attempts to create a general theory about allegiances in the Civil War, and the most 
delightful and famous is deliciously crafted by David Underdown from a study of southwestern England, which is also, coincidentally, where will come the strongest incidence of clubmen. So this is the idea that allegiances were driven by cultural characteristics that owed much to the typography and natural environment of the area where people lived. So he traced a difference between those areas of the country dominated by arable and those dominated by wood pasture. So, champion land, open countryside, with a predominance of arable farming, that demanded close cooperation of communities. The village was tightly nucleated, close-knit communities where tradition and custom were strong, a culture of hierarchy and deference, and a close attachment to the good old Church of England. These lovers of social order would be inclined to support the side that had very effectively presented itself as a defender of order, stability and tradition. Long live King Charles! On the other hand, many areas were characterised far more by dispersed settlement, unplanned ancient countryside, a land of wood and pasture where rural crafts might be stronger and a dispersed nature of pastoral agriculture, their reliance on the resources of individual farms, those were the norms. There, it is suggested, pure Puritanism and religious pluralism and radicalism flourished. These were the people who valued their liberty, independence and religious freedom and would support their champion. God save Parliament, our bulwark against the royal tyrants. It's a very attractive theory, the sort of thing with an elegance that just makes you want to believe it. But there are simply too many exceptions for it to be a rule. The most obvious one is East Anglia, countries of open rolling countryside and arable farming, also the most religiously radical outside London and the firmest supporters of Parliament throughout the war. The lead miners of Derbyshire, highly independent and you'd expect them to be core Parliament territory. Nope, staunchly royalist. So there we have it, another example of maybe an indicator sometimes and a delightfully fun theory. OK, I hear you ask, how's about towns then? That must be an absolute gimme, a three-pointer all the way home, or as one person put it, nurseries of faction and rebellion. I mean, there's London, for crying out loud, all that mayhem and protest. And I mean, yes... In many cases, towns would indeed be for Parliament, the clothing districts in particular, driven by independent peace workers, traders and artisans. Literacy was high, Puritanism and religious radicalism too, religions of the word. And in towns, more than anywhere, was a high proportion of the middling sort, these that were now highly politically engaged. So, Coventry, the West Riding of Yorkshire, Birmingham, Norwich, all these were strong supporters of Parliament. But, just as Mayor Richard Gurney in London had helped the King make a comeback and a triumphant entry into London in November 1641, had fought the likes of Isaac Pennington and John Venn, so the wealthy aldermen in many towns were either worried by the social chaos promised by religious radicals or just wanted none of it at all because war was not good for trade. They often enjoyed political and commercial privileges under the King, but what would Parliament do with those? So Bristol, Worcester, Gloucester, they tried to stay well out of it. Places like Leeds and Newcastle, there there was a strong difference of opinion between the elite and the people. Oxford and Cambridge are interesting. There, gown was for king, town was for parliament. It is again complicated. 
Have you had enough now of not simple? It might be easier just get to go for the good old traditional north and west equals royalist, south and east equals parliament. Wham, bam. Thank you, Sam. Next. But hang on. Even Wales isn't simple. Everything I had read used to take it as for granted that for the Welsh, Charles was, well, you know, king. And indeed, there were very powerful magnates, the Marquis of Worcester at Raglan Castle, the Earl of Hereford, the Dakers in Wales, who did indeed provide massive power bases for Charles. But there were also many powerful supporters of Parliament, especially initially, particularly the Herbert Earl of Pembroke in South Wales. In the end, you just have to get your hands dirty and understand the situation in each county. We're going to do a few in a moment, and a few families as well, because the word I want you to go away with with this episode is division. The Civil War divides everyone. Country, county, community, village, family. There are some indicators, as we have discussed, but there are no hard and no fast rules. The one that really brought that home for me was the court interest. So, office holders of the king, essentially, owing loyalty directly to the king for their employment, paid and employed by the king, 900 of them, surely a shoe-in for Charles. Wrong. About half were, the other half either supported Parliament or tried to stay completely out of it. I might take us to God's own county, Yorkshire, to illustrate the message of this week's episode, which is that most people made decisions very reluctantly, that those choices depended on a vast array of local and personal factors, but that people did make a choice one way or another. No one really believes anymore that the civil wars were purely an elite affair like the Wars of the Roses. People made an active choice to aside king, parliament or simple survival. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, let me take you away from all this and whip you off to Heworth Moor, two miles to the east of the glorious city of York. It is the 3rd of June 1642, and by golly, an area which was normally windswept and deserted was heaving with people. Ministers, yeomen, husbandmen, a pretty fair cross-section of society, and there were 40,000 of them. That, my friend, is a lot of people. They'd been summoned by the king, who intended to demand and receive their loyalty as he ramped up his campaign to build an army to crush the rebels. Majesty would be the watchword of this day, the king in glory, to dazzle his loyal people of Yorkshire. So he arrived at Heworth Moor in all his glory, accompanied by his son and heir Charles, and by his nephew, Charles Louis the Elector of the Palatinate, and by 120 gentlemen, very shiny, buffed and burnished armour, and 800 of the local trained bands. After his announcement, he awaited acclamation and silence, but instead received a confused clamour. Some cried, God bless the king, which, you know, was gratifying and as it should be, but hang on, others were shouting, God turn the king's heart. Well, now, Charles tried to address them all through his leading men, 
and there were a couple of royal proclamations, but I invite you to imagine the scene as one similar to Monty P's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. No one could hear properly, so most people spent their time discussing issues along the lines of whether he'd really said, blessed are the cheesemakers, and if that was in fact simply a metaphor for the makers of all dairy products. Almost no one would leave Heworth Moore with any clue on why they'd been summoned in the first place. But it was a scrum. As the event unfolded, Charles realised to his horror and, frankly, injured outrage that rather than reverence for the king ahead, there was politicking and, frankly, bolshiness going on hundreds of years before the Bolsheviks gave rise to the word. And this is, as far as the good people of Yorkshire are concerned, I have to tell you, sui generis. Yorkshire folk are not given to just doing what they're told without a good reason. So there were groups of gentlemen and gentry working the crowd for support. For the king by some, but outrageously for Parliament by others, like a socialist turning up to a meeting of the Newport Pagnell Conservatives' annual tombola. This was not a royal progress. This was a scrum. There were handshakes, pledges, deals, exhortations, pleadings, curses going on all over the field. It was chaos. This was supposed to be a glorious fundraiser, a royal recruitment. Instead, here we had the dignity of the supposed fine leaders of society desperately bidding for the favour of commoners. Then a Yorkshireman horse approached the king's party. It was a young soldier who Charles had knighted on the eve of the bishop's war, had he remembered. The young man's name was Thomas Fairfax, and he looked to address the king. But the guard and the gentleman weren't having that. Uh, the ones around him drew their horses closer and tried to keep him away. But Fairfax wouldn't be denied. He had a petition to present from his community. Charles tried to refuse to receive it, but Fairfax pushed his way through and slapped the petition defiantly on the king's pommel. Charles pushed his horse past Fairfax and refused to acknowledge him. At this time, the Fairfaxes, relatively minor gentry from the West Riding of Yorkshire, were worried about the king's actions, but they weren't decided either way. As the king pushed them aside, he would live to regret his contemptuous dismissal of them and his declaration later that the Fairfax and his supporters were a few mean, inconsiderable persons disliked by the known gentry, clergy and inhabitants of the whole county. Charles was wrong. I mean, in a way he was right. The greater gentry of Yorkshire, including our traditionalist Henry Slingsby, were very much for the royal cause. But over the next 12 months, the Fairfaxes would build and fight for a significant part of Yorkshire. To some degree, this would divide into a royalist east and a parliamentary west, and the survival of a parliamentarian force in Yorkshire under the Fairfaxes would demonstrate a few points. Firstly, Fairfax was not a great lord. This was not a baronial revolt on his part, a gathering of their tenants to fight for a cause, whether they wanted it or not. They didn't have that many tenants to order about anyway. Instead, the Fairfax's support would rely very much on the clothing towns of Yorkshire, places like Halifax and Bradford. These were people who were energised by the news of the atrocity visited on the Irish Protestants and the fear that the same threat was coming here who looked for religious freedom, who were used to independence through their reliance on the rural trade of cloth production. They were also suffering. The cloth trade was in trouble from war here and abroad, and they were suffering great economic hardships. Many of them saw this 
as suffering for providential reasons. This was God's punishment for having permitted the sinful and idolatrous policies of Charles I. The struggle in Yorkshire is fascinating. If you're looking for evidence of a class struggle, it's not a bad place to start. The phrase clubman it appears, as in the people of Bradford and Manchester across the border in Lancashire, threatened local royalist estates. And similar scenes took place in the Stour Valley in Essex and in Oxfordshire. A libel had declared that the gentry have been our masters a long time now and we may chance to master them. A tract in January 1643 called Plain English praised the uprisings in Yorkshire and celebrated the rights of ordinary people. Sure, you are not so contemptible a thing as some people would make you. Your right is much and your power no less. Such words horrified the traditional Yorkshire gentry and it scared them. William Savile, for example, was well known to the clubman of Bradford as a rent-racker and in December 1642 they would take their revenge and raise his estates as close to the ground as was possible without a good diesel engine strimmer. Royalist gentry outnumbered parliamentary gentry in Yorkshire by two to one, it is true to say. And it was Bradford's defiance that kept the Fairfax's campaign alive. Here is a theme we will return to many times, the world turned upside down. It extended not just from gentry to common people, so... John Hotham, for example, the parliamentarian, he was horrified at being told to take orders from a family as lowly as the Fairfaxes. It was a horror that he just couldn't manage to deal with. I mean, they were both gentry, but that order of precedence absolutely mattered to Hotham. As we'll hear, the very thought of taking orders from an oik-like Fairfax offended his deeply touchy sense of lineage, precedence and his sense of honour. Honour was indeed another major motivator in another way which often played for the king. After fighting for years on the royalist side, for example, George Goring later reflected that I had it all from his majesty and he had it all again. One of the most famous family splits in the whole revolution was that of the Verney family. Ralph Verney was a fervent parliamentarian and MP who would fight for the parliamentary cause. But none of the rest of his family would. His father, the head of the family, Edmund Verney, had protested at the king's actions in the 20s and 30s, but when the chips were down, he went north to York to join him. And he wrote, I do not like the quarrel and do heartily wish the king would yield and consent to what they desire, so that my conscience is only concerned in honour and gratitude to follow my master. I have eaten his bread and served him near thirty years and will not do so base a thing as to forsake him. It's all very sad. Edmund would be welcomed by the king and made his standard bearer. His son, Ralph, though, was the object of letters from his family, both pleading and angry. A friend of his mother, Anne Sydenham, wrote of her anger at Ralph's decision to fight for Parliament and the people for whom he fought. For tis the liberty of subject take all, and to pull down their houses and imprison them and leave them to the mercy of the unruly multitude. In the end, Ralph just couldn't reconcile family and conscience. He would run away, take his family abroad, so that he could escape making a choice. And for Thomas Fairfax, honour was also a crucial part of his decision, but for him, honour was less a matter of status and lineage 
but of his civic duty, his responsibility to defend and lead the ordinary people of his community and defend what he considered to be their best interests. Thomas Fairfax is one of the revolution's more attractive characters. He was relentlessly self-effacing and modest, even when he became commander of the new model army in 1645. And he now he was clearly reluctant to fight unless he had no choice. So in September, the Fairfax family and others, including our Henry Slingsby, signed a peace treaty, reserving Yorkshire to stand aside from any conflict. It suspended all commissions of array and all musters of militia bands. Like the other 21 counties that tried to do the Knut hold back the tide thing, it failed within a month. OK, look, I've, that's enough, I think, although there will be more agonising about choices before we're done. How to summarise all of this before we move on to our climactic scene of the week? Da, 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 da. Hopefully you have the message of families, counties, communities split, of active participation by all classes, of a politicised middle sort. The choices were made for a variety of reasons, from deference and loyalty to religion to resistance to tyranny, even to class. There were no hard and fast rules, just indicators. The historian Mark Kishlansky probably summarises it as well as possible when he wrote the following. Royalists fought for the traditions of religion and monarchy that their ancestors had preserved. They believed in bishops and the divine right of kings as the mooring of a hierarchy in church and state. Parliamentarians fought for true religion and liberty. Their fundamental principle was consent, an ingrained belief in the cooperation between subject and sovereign. I can see you rolling your eyes and saying, well, why didn't you say that for, to start with so that we could get on with the fighting? We want blood, give us blood, and all that sort of thing. Well, you know, Kishlansky's summarising, and you can have too much of summarising. It's a drug. But OK, let's now get on with it. Now, Hewithmore was not one of Charles's high spots, but he was learning. After all, he was now consistently doing what he'd hated to do ever since he first came to the throne. He was engaging with the people. He didn't have the good Queen Bess common touch thing quite, but he'd made his great entry into Edinburgh, into London in November, and here he was at Hewithmore. We've seen with Edward Hyde that he did have that ability to make people feel special when he so chose, to draw them in. He now went on a series of progresses from York to Doncaster, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire and most successfully of all to Lincolnshire on the 13th of July where crowds lined the streets and cheered and he met all the local dignitaries caressing the principal gentleman severally, familiarly and very obligingly. Said that way, it sounds a little dodgy, it has to be said. But hey, look, you don't get to see royalty very much in Lincoln. So, in a fit of enthusiasm, they promised 400 cavalry to support him. The message, as 1643 unfolds, is that Charles is perfectly capable of generating enthusiasm and loyalty from those that agree with his worldview. By August 1642, it was time. Charles felt that Hotham's defiance and Parliament's stealing of military power was effectively a declaration of rebellion, and he was now free to act. He had pressed the flesh, called on his great men, 
people were coming to his call and armies were collecting under the Earl of Newcastle, the Earl of Hertford, the Earl of Northampton and others. He had liftoff and he planned a great event to start the great crushing of Parliament's hopes. It would be in Nottingham and he would be surrounded by a loyal, cheering crowd, his people, as the great comeback was launched. On the 12th of August, 1642, he sent out a proclamation ordering his subjects to attend him at Nottingham on the 22nd of August, where we intend to erect our standard royal in our just and necessary defence, and whence we resolve to advance forward for the suppression of said rebellion and the protection of our good subjects among them from the burden of the slavery and insolence under which they cannot but groan until they be relieved by us. The day dawned. The summer, sadly, was not playing ball. It was rainy and it was blustery. In the morning, on a mound in the middle of Nottingham, the king gathered his loyal retainers and there made his proclamation. And with great ceremony, unfurled the great royal banner, sat on a long red staff with the St George's Cross, the royal arms and the motto, Give Caesar his due! The drums rolled, the trumpets blared, they struck noble poses. Edmund Verney, now made knight marshal and firmly gripping the standard, declared loudly that they who would take that standard from him must first wrest his soul from his body. It was raining. As Charles looked out from the standard, pretty much nobody looked back. Well, in fact, there were about 30 miserable, wet-looking individuals who had come along and stood there in the dripping rain. And then everyone wandered off. That night, the standard blew over and lay in the rain and the mud. It wasn't a great start, to be fair. But look, we're off. England was at war with itself. Next time, us English will indeed start shooting at each other and the killing will start. So, it is with a heavy heart that I invite you to join me next week for the History of England. In the meantime, thank you all for listening very much. Thank you for taking part. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.